Hello and welcome to Stock Talk, a podcast series which brings together livestock specialists, vets and farmers to give you the tools you need to improve your business and embrace the future. Stock Talk is presented by myself, Robert Ramsey, and produced by Kirsten Blackwood as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. So we're joined today by a bit of a celebrity, someone who I feel like I know really well because he spends a lot of time in my living room on the television. Um, Today's topic is all about lameness and cattle and we're really lucky we've got probably the the headline act from the um the lameness world is graham parker also known as the hoof gp so hello to you graham how's things are you today hello things are really good i'm actually slightly jet jet lagged because i'm just back from california but apart from that everything is really good yeah the life and times of an average foot trimmer <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that sounds about right yeah so <laughs> I know many people will be aware of what what you do and what the Hoof GP is all about, but I think for those that don't, I think it'd be good just to get a bit about, so who is Graham Parker and what is the Hoof GP? Okay, so I am a farmer's son uh, working in southwest Scotland, so Wigtonshire, southwest Scotland. My father died actually when I was 15, so the farms got sold, so we don't have any farms or anything now. Um, but my mother remarried a hoof trimmer, and eventually I kind of came into the fold and began hoof trimming about 11 or 12 years ago. Now that kind of morphed because I'm the kind of person who gets bored of things, to be honest, and I look for new and adventurous ways to keep myself entertained. And at the time, I was constantly explaining to farmers and farmhands and dairymen and things what I'd done or what the problems were in different farms. So we started putting these problems on YouTube just to direct my farmers to what the solutions we'd found before. Um, And... Obviously, it kind of uh, exploded from there. I assumed it would just be farmers that would watch it, but now it's obviously people from inner cities and people from right across the world. So right now, the Hoof GP is a YouTube channel, a Facebook channel, a TikTok page, a Instagram page. It has about three and a half million followers, maybe four million followers across all platforms. And what is more incredible is it's reached about 1.9 billion views now across the world. So it's um, it's a juggernaut of a thing. But at the end of the day, I am a hoof trimmer, trimming cows every day of the week. It's an amazing story. Those stats are unreal. Like they're you know that basically you've got slightly less followers than we've got people in Scotland. <laughs> you know, it's bonkers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it is absolutely, it's incredible. So there's that amount of followers, but there's around somewhere between 10 and 12 million unique viewers a month. So that's 10 to 12 million different people watching from around the world. So yeah, it is really incredible. Um, and it shines a light on lameness, which, and it's not just lameness, it shines a light on lameness and the things that surround it. So the things that farmers are putting into place to eliminate lameness, it shines a light on why lameness isn't good on farms and why farmers naturally do not want lameness. So it also shines a light on the things like where vegans or vegetarians will say, this is a lame cow, it's terrible, nothing's being done about it. But actually we are showing what is being done about it. And at the same time, it's teaching farmers what they can do about it better and it's teaching hoof trimmers and vets and all sorts of people little tidbits of information which hopefully they can implement so it's yeah it's pretty incredible i'm uh, i'm really proud of it to be honest you yeah, know yeah. you should be it's it's remarkable and i, I know uh, the bit i can't get 
is so I watch it with my farmer hat on and certainly you know to start with was watching to genuinely get better at sorting feet you know yeah. and I don't lift and we run I heard the shorthorn cows and pretty much lameness is one of the things that we're selecting against so yeah. we don't sort a lot of feet yeah but when I do come to sort of foot I quite like to know what I'm what I'm at and, and I thought your, your initial stuff was really good but I can't I can't believe that people in the centre of London what you know are, are so engaged in what you're doing and, and I think that goes back to how you're doing it and how you're presenting it and it's so professionally done and I think is one of the shining examples of getting positive messages about farming to the consumer you know it's an amazing yeah. thing that the, the foot trimmer who, who's very much at the coal face of probably something that agriculture shouldn't be you know that certainly dairy farming the lameness story is not necessarily a positive one but you've made it one hundred <laughs> percent so on the face of it, what you're kind of hinting at there, I think, is on the face of it, you go on YouTube and there's a whole load of terrible, grotesque feet that meet you and people go, wow, dairy industry is terrible. So on the face of it, it looks terrible. And the reason for that is, so everything we do is really, really, there's spe specific reasons for everything we do. The reason for that is to gain as many viewers as possible because you need viewers to send your message, no matter what it is you're doing. So you need to drag people in. And yes, initially, people will look at that 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 image, that thumbnail, and go, oh, that's terrible. And because it's terrible, they'll click on it. And then once they've clicked on it, everything is then explained about the context of the situation, what the cows, how many cows a week maybe we're doing, how many are actually lame. So we're trimming 400 cows a, a week. But I actually only show either two or three lame cows from the whole week. So 19... 5% of the cows that we're trimming are not lame. And that's constantly, or at least I try to constantly reinforce that in all of the videos that this is not the general um, the general state of cow's feet. And I explain what farmers are doing about it. And then I'll teach them what they, could, what they can do about it as well. So you would think, like, like you say, you think it's a very kind of contentious subject. You would think that it could be bad, but as long as it's dealt with um, sensibly and tentatively, then it, it can be a real positive. And I think it has been a real positive. I feel a huge sense of responsibility when it comes to anything like this because, you know, I have the ability to make it look terrible, but that is absolutely not what I want. And it, w it wouldn't be the true face of it either. But it, it could be easily twisted, as everybody's seen on programmes like Panorama. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, actually, just thinking about it. You're, the reason we got on you got, got you on here today was from a ability to talk. You know, that's what a podcast all about. Your voiceover, you could take your footage and put an entirely different voiceover over it. And it could be horrendously damaging. You know, it's a, it's an amazing. You know, I think as I say, I think you should be really, really proud of where, what that's become and what it's, what it's grown into. But I suppose the interesting question is, what does, it, what's next? Like, where does that that Hoof GP channel? What does the next ten years look like for it? Um, I've no idea because I didn't think, I didn't set out on this journey to achieve what it's achieved. I set out in the journey to put some videos online to teach some, some farmers how to look after their feet a bit better. And what happens is, I'll be totally honest with you, and I'm honest with everybody, it kind of gets away from you sometimes. 
So like the purpose of what I put on there is to teach farmers how to look after cows' feet. But because so many people from inner cities and from um, Central California or South Africa or whatever start watching, you end up kind of playing to them a little bit and you have to catch yourself and say, no, the original message is to teach farmers how to look after cows' feet. So then you go back to that. So it will always come back to how to look after cows' feet better. But now as opposed to when we started, now we have to reinforce what farmers are actually doing to avoid these situations and how much money they invest, how much time they invest. Uh, we have to look at the overview of some of the farms to show how good these cows really are. So before, when I set out to do what I'm doing, I didn't need to concentrate on any of that because I was specifically talking to farmers. But now I need to keep in mind that it's not just farmers that are watching and that it's... Um, people as a whole one of the interesting things is so we get a huge amount of comments every day like about somewhere between five and six thousand messages and comments a day and a massive one is that people wish the farm the cow husbandry or animal husbandry was as good in their country as it is in scotland now i'm gonna kind of i'm not gonna publicly disagree with them. well i kind of am now i suppose but i don't actually believe that to be true I just think that because we're putting a positive spin on it and we're showing it in a good light and we're showing it to its true extent and people aren't necessarily doing that in their countries, then they're getting a good opinion of the animal husbandry in Scotland. Now, it's not, wor it's not worse. I think it's about the same, to be totally honest. Like we have green fields and things, so during the summer it's fantastic. But during the winter when, think, when animals are housed, it's a really difficult environment to look after cows but because we're putting this positive face on it people from an outside world are having a positive opinion on the cows and the standards in scotland which um yeah i think your original question i've completely got away from it was where do you think the hoof tp will be in 10 years um my answer is i'll just keep trying to come back to teaching farmers how to look after the cows as best i can and uh it'll just keep going that way i think yeah no exciting times it's amazing i think going back to your comment about our husbandry i think we do need to give our guys a shout out so i've been with sec since 2011 and certainly in that time i've seen a huge change and i mean at that stage a 10,000 liter average was pretty exceptional you know there was a few people doing it the the rate of change in the dairy industry is massive and i think we're now producing more we're certainly producing more milk but i think the the level of husbandry has significantly changed in that period and that that's partly due to poorer performers no longer milking cows sorry are you talking about over the last 10 years or five years or what probably kind of i would think in the last certainly in the last five or six years i think the the dairy industry's got very professional and very the vast majority of producers are very good at the do, what they do but then they have to be because it's a market forces thing you know i think you're so correct it's untrue i think the whole world of so the business of dairying was always it's a professional business but i think all like this might sound a silly word to use but all the ancillaries around about are becoming more and more professional so consultants and vets who are acting as consultants and nutritionists and hoof trimmers and everybody who's coming into the farm are becoming more and more professional and that's being driven by the farmers want for it and their need for it and the, the industry forcing it like like you say the the monetary constraints and the tight lines and things are forcing evolution and it only seems to be like self-perpetuating obviously uh, 
for instance, if somebody sees like a, somebody using a good consultant and getting results, so then their neighbor wants the same and their neighbor wants the same and their neighbor wants the same. And I think there definitely has been a big shift in the, in the last five, six, seven, eight years. Definitely. Yeah. I totally yeah. agree. And, and it's probably where I mean, that, that links really neatly into what you do. So your role on farm isn't just the guy that sorts feet, you know, that, that role has, has evolved and into, um, you know, your specialist input on a monthly basis or fortnightly basis on farms is, I think, part of, you know, the, the foot trimmer, the vet, the nutritionist, all these guys on farm regularly are so, so important to making a successful farmer better at what they do. How, yeah. how often, what is your, so if you're at the ideal world, and this is from the farmer's perspective, not from the foot trimmer's perspective, <laughs> but... In an ideal world, how often should a foot trimmer be on farm or how often should a, a average dairy cow be getting their, their feet lifted? This is such a stupid answer. Every time she needs it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the reason I say that is um, if you had asked that question to somebody who is high up and a vet who is interested in hoof trimming and, and preaching to can, uh, hoof trimmers, if you'd asked them that, seven or eight years ago, they would have said twice a year. If you asked them that a couple of years ago, they would have said three times a year. And if you ask them that now, it, it, it's becoming more and more, um, like it's becoming more and more um, constant. Like people people are wanting to trim their cows more and more. So the, the true answer is when a cow's feet become unbalanced, she's now uncomfortable. So as soon as... An imbalance comes into play, then the cow needs her feet trimmed back to be in balance. That is usually three to four months after they've been trimmed. So a cow's hoof is roughly speaking 75 millimeters long. It varies, obviously. And their feet grow at roughly five to six millimeters per month. So if you think after three months, they've now grown 15 to 18 millimeters. And they're not going to wear their feet properly when they're, I'm talking about cows on concrete here. When they're on concrete, they're not going to wear their feet properly because they've got all these different things that we've implemented on them. So they have larger than uh, usual udders for if they were in the wild. They're on concrete, so they're turning on really hard surfaces, which are completely unforgiven. They're turning, um, they're turning at all. If you have a cow in the wild in a big open plain, why would she ever like pirouette on her foot, she wouldn't. She would She would walk around in an arch. Um, so all of these different things are uh, pressures put on cows' feet. And the pressures that are put on these cows' feet are different in every environment. So I have some places where I'll trim the cows four times a year. And I have some, believe it or not, and any hoof trimmers or vets listening to this might cringe, some places I don't even trim their feet at all sometimes during the year. Now, I'm talking there about New Zealand-style setups. So we have one, and a lot of people listening to this will know where I'm talking about, the Dury, which is in southwest Scotland here. They have, they're milking around 1,100 cows just now. I think I probably see about 60% of their cows every year, and the rest take care of themselves completely. Now, that isn't to say that, we, that they're not being taken care of, because they are. So their cows are not routinely trimmed. And I don't suggest people listening to this just decide not to routine trim their cows. 
but they're not routine trimmed. What they do instead is every single day that they're in the parlor, they're looking at their feet. All the guys are routinely trained to look at cows' feet. And if there's any imbalance there, well, the cow's drawn out and we visit that farm every two weeks. So out of about 1,100 cows, we end up trimming roughly 60 a month. So what's that? 600, 720 cows a year. So of that, that's probably 60% of the herd. And then a few of them are seen two or three times. Yeah. And then we will go to another really high yielding herd. Like for instance, today we're at a farm, we only trimmed 40, um, but they're high yield in there. They've got really high inputs just now. So they're producing a lot of hoof horn because hoof horn is effectively protein. So the more protein a cow is fed and the healthier her diet, actually, she can synthesize that protein into keratin, which is what hooves are made of. So her feet are growing faster. She's not walking like the cows from the dairy. She's uh, producing more milk and she's on concrete. So it's a completely different environment. And those cows are being trimmed about four times a year. Both of those instances, their lameness is below... The second instance of the Holstein herd, their lameness is around 2% and the, the Dury's lameness is around half a percent, which is like, I mean, you're not going to get, you're aiming for zero, but you're never really going to reach zero. So half a percent is pretty darn good. And if you looked at that number of people, more than half a percent of them would be lame. <laughs> yeah, yeah and that, that's something I explain in the videos, actually. I'm not going to go totally back to the GP, but when, when we're in the videos, People will say, oh, it's ridiculous that, that that cow's lame. But you need to explain this is a village of 600 people. And somebody one of, one of them has, has hurt her foot. So they can become lame from bashing their foot on a concrete edge or anything like that. And like you say, if you have that amount of people, you're going to have one that's got a sore finger or a sore foot or whatever. So yeah, yeah totally. Agree. I think it's interesting when you look at what, what Rory's doing at the Dury versus your more conventional high yielding herd the priorities are totally different you know the the grass-based dairying model is probably similar more similar to a sheep system where it's a you know it's a output from the herd perspective and it's uh if there's a problem he'll be more likely to to cull out the problem and actually, you know, try and have this more resilient herd whereas if you've got a cow that's given you fourteen thousand liters you'll do what you need to do to keep that animal keep keep going on, and yeah. indeed from her, and then you see you're you're perpetuating that that genetic challenge as well. It's about making the right decision at the right time. Time is really important. So, like you say, that instance of a cow producing fourteen thousand liters or or whatever, if she's on a downward spiral with her hoofs or her feet or whatever like that, and cows like that can tend to throw up hoof problems because they're throwing so much into milk production that the quality of the hoof horn isn't quite there. So a cow like that's going to need more attention than a cow that's producing less. It's just like a race car, isn't it? A race car burns more fuel and costs more money to to maintain, and so does a, a really high-performing cow. Um, yeah, they're, they're completely different systems. So Rory at the Dury used to, he actually employed me to routine trim his cows and we, we routine trimmed them for a year and then I told him he was wasting his money and I truly felt he was. And now he's at a stage where, where it's working really well for him. But going back to Holstein's, they're a completely different thing. There's less body fat in a Holstein, which means they're more likely to become lame they're much heavier animals they've got larger udders usually than than a, a jersey cross which 
is going to mean the conformation of the way that they walk isn't fantastic for their feet. So you need to care for whatever animal you've got in whatever system you've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the thing? So you you don't have an average client. We don't have an average client. But if we assume, what's the stuff that really annoys you? What's the that farmers do? What's the thing that you creates work for you or creates problems for themselves? Dermatitis. Digital <laughs> <laughs> dermatitis or mortal arrow or hairy wart or wherever you are listening to this. Um, digital dermatitis is the worst thing ever. But what what is frustrating about it is if you pick up a cow's hoof and there's a, a farmer there and he'll say, oh, she's lame. And uh, you'll pick up in front of him and say, oh, it's just digital dermatitis. And you're like, no, 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 it's not just digital dermatitis. Because I'm going to explain a little bit further here. So if you have a digital dermatitis lesion, that is going to be like massively hindering the cow from being at her best performance. But forget about that, that, that actual cow. So she's got a dermatitis lesion. We can cure that, we can heal it, and we can get her to overcome it really quickly. What is much more difficult is a cow who has an ulcer on a farm that has digital dermatitis because you can create the absolute perfect foot trim of a cow with a sole ulcer. You can block her, you can do everything you can. But if that ulcer is being exposed to digital dermatitis consistently and constantly for days and days on end, then that cow is trying to produce new hoof horn to heal that sole ulcer, but it's being eaten away at the same time by digital dermatitis. And if you don't heal it within the first few days, then she is so much more likely to become infected and chronically lame. It's impossible to quantify how much digital dermatitis complicates things. So when people say it's just dermatitis, it's not frustrating. Well, it is frustrating, but people really need to understand how cataclysmic digital dermatitis on your farm can truly be because it is unbelievable the cost to a farmer. It's completely incalculable. I've heard ranges from £150 per case to £450 per case. And they're definitely being... um, they're going on the cautious side there. They really are. And that, and that sounds like some people listening to that might think there's no way it could cost you that, but it definitely, definitely can. Yeah. And is it everywhere? So I would say it is on 99% of farms. Yes. So I have farms and um, there's a fantastic, I, I have lots of farms where none of the cows have digital dermatitis, not even one, but they foot bath five days a week or six days a week. And if they weren't to do that, it would just rear its ugly head straight away. I have one farm that I've been trimming at for 10 years constantly. He has about 1% lameness. He's, he's a fantastic farmer and he foot baths six days a week, but at both ends of the day, a nice low solution, but that's what he does. And he doesn't have dermatitis, but we both know as soon as he cuts it back at all, it starts to come into the cows. And then it's just going to spread its, its way right through every single cow. Like, as in, there's going to be dirt and debris on every single cow that contains the, those that virus, the treponema that caused dermatitis. And is it one? Is it a situation where, if you're the, the very lucky person, I say it's a new herd and an absolutely new split new dairy unit that has no digital dermatitis, is uh-huh. is being naive to digital digital dermatitis? Is that a 
problem? Like, is it wildfire when it when it arrives, or does it just murmur? So yes, and yes, and no. You're you're correct. So I'm not gonna just advocate everybody. So if somebody's listening to this right now and they don't have dermatitis and they've not had it for ten years at all, then I'm not saying start foot bathing right now. You need to like that is not, that's not the case. That would be money uh, ill spent. But what I will say is somebody who thinks, somebody who has a herd of 100 cows and thinks 10 of their cows have dermatitis is wrong. 30 of their cows have got dermatitis because cows are herding animals, as everybody knows, so they inherently try to hide any lameness because lameness is a sign of weakness and they're prey animals. So you can only ever detect around 30% of lameness by walking through a herd, the rest you're not going to see. And those small lesions are the ones that are so, so unbelievably easy to fix that if you get them in the beginning, they're almost a non-issue. But once they start um, really kind of being exacerbated and stretching and growing, then they become a whole different thing and they, they can become chronically lame from it. So, so yeah, it is naive to think if you have a couple of cows, that's all you have within your herd, because I can guarantee you there are quite a lot of cows within your herd that have got it, if you think there's a few. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. And also just a shout out to, a, as the spokesman for all the sheep farmers, it's also really rubbish when you spread lots of slurry on your on ground when there's, when there's winter is there, and then they get digital dermatitis. It's also quite horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. So it's been proven. So there used to be, we were talking earlier about how the world of um, dairy has changed and animal husbandry standards have come up in the last five, six, seven, eight years. Um, and a lot of that has been pushed on by people like Nick Bell and Sarah Peterson doing different um, different observations into hoof trimming and different, like different uh, husbandry aspects. And one of them is uh, studies into digital dermatitis have really, really been pushed um, farther than ever before. And they used to, for the first five or six years of my career, everybody would always say that dermatitis can only live within oxygen for 20 minutes. So, for instance, you would get a lot of hoof trimmers and vets even that had dirty implements and think, oh, it's fine, like dermatitis only lives for 20, 20 minutes in exposure to oxygen. But they've completely disproven that now and they've been able to get it to live up for up to a few hours so if they can get it to live up to for, for a few hours right now in oxygen then another five years are they going to prove it can live up to a couple of days you know it just goes like that's another aspect that has greatly increased so my father was uh, stepfather was a hoof trimmer for 27 years and his kit was just disgusting i'll be honest it was filthy um, one of our biggest jobs is cleaning before we leave any farm. So we can take, it's always 40 minutes, sometimes it's over an hour, cleaning our materials, our crush, our implements, our our uh, pickup truck, our overalls and everything like that. And that is really helping to try to disperse things like digital dermatitis. And obviously you've got much more serious diseases like foot and mouth, which I don't need to talk about that. But like, it's so important that those standards are upheld um, and it, it is going in the right way, hasn't it? So. Yeah, and I, I certainly think, again, just on the the industry changing, I think the farmer attitude, the modern farmer, is that turning up dirty is not an option, even for, for our job, you know, yeah. clean, clean wellies aren't an option, they're, a, they're compulsory. That You know, the, yeah. the biosecurity story is, you know, if we've got a healthy herd, 
were were more than halfway there. And, yeah, and yeah. If you if yeah. you open the door to problems, well, you know, and and you guys particularly, you know, at the coal face, cutting something's foot with something that's dirty. Yeah. from a, another head that's a disaster yeah. a disaster but. Not, so I've got a silly little story that um, I was at a farm near Castle Douglas down here and uh, it was just as I was starting my career as a hoof trimmer and the farmer Farmer Jim not the Farmer Jim but Farmer Jim said to me um, oh is, uh, is that guy is he still foot trimming I says what guy he says that guy that lives in Village X and uh, I, said, I, don't, I don't know who you're talking about. He says, the guy with the really dirty crush. And I said, oh, you mean John? And he, he said, aye, is he still foot trimming? And I thought, I really don't want to be known as the guy with the dirty crush. <laughs> and it, I always, always remember that story. And it, from so from the very beginning, it kind of incited in me that I needed to be clean. But also, like, we've just been talking about digital dermatitis. So forgetting the biosecurity thing, if I turn up with a dirty crush, dirty knives, dirty everything, even just dirty footwear, it says to a farmer that cleanliness doesn't really matter that much. But then I'm trying to preach to him that he needs to be as hygienic as possible to keep digital dermatitis at bay. Well, the two don't really marry up, do they? So I need to, what is it, preach, practice what I preach. Um, so yeah, I, I also think if somebody's turning up dirty, it kind of shows maybe what their standards are throughout the rest of their work as well. You know, um, maybe that's not true, but it, it, I definitely get the feeling if somebody turns up kind of unkempt, that they're maybe not that professional. That's a first impression thing, isn't it? And it's quite often, it's not always yeah. right, but it's quite often right. But Yeah, exactly, yeah. Thankfully, I think because of the Hoof GP and, and what's happened, you're now known as the guy with the fancy crust rather than the dirty crust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy with the fancy, yeah. 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 You'd be amazed how many photographs I get of different hoof, tr- hoof crushes all over the world saying oh i saw this today i thought of you the hoof gp and like so it's yeah yeah it's, it's funny that people people know you for the crush yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about you now we've talked a good bit about dairy and we could talk about dairy lameness all day long you know it's a huge topic but what about if we move into the beef world is your approach do you do many beef, beef farms and is your approach to hoof trimming or, or advice to farmers different in a beef scenario that isn't a dairy yeah, so it, it goes back to so it's not so it ends up being different. My approach is no different. If a cow is on balance, then she needs she needs her feet attended to because a cow is supposed to walk fifty percent on one claw and fifty percent on the other claw. So if she's not, then she is uncomfortable. There's no doubt about that. Now, whether that uncomfortableness leads to a real lesion is a different story. It's a different scenario. So when I'm talking to beef farmers, then my advice is that they should be seeking out those cows once a year or twice a year to look for any imbalances and then trim them back to make sure that the likelihood of them going lame is vastly reduced. But as you'll know yourself, cows who are outside on grass parks or hillsides or whatever are much less likely to become lame. But if you can nip it, nip it in the bud before that lameness comes, then it, the value in it is incredible. Most hoof trimmers are going to charge around 11 or 12 pounds probably per cow. That 11 or 12 pounds once a year to ensure the longevity of your herd is surely it's worth it. The problems we see in beef cows are usually much more severe because a beef animal must have a much higher pain threshold than a dairy animal. I'm saying must have, 
in my experience, they must have because you'll see some incredible things on a, on a beef animal and they won't be showing the same sorts of lameness um, implications that a dairy cow would be. So usually when you're trimming a beef cow and you find a problem, it's a much more serious problem. So the earlier you can get to that problem, the much, the greater the likelihood of you solving that problem is. But I'm not going to sit here and say that all beef cows should be routine trimmed twice or three times a year because I don't believe that to be true. And when when we're attending these farms, the vast majority of beef cows' feet are perfectly fine. They're outside in the environment that is correct for their feet. So the what they're walking on is key to this dairy cows or any cow sorry when we're trimming it we look for a foot angle of about 50 degrees that means if you take the dorsal wall so the front hoof wall and then you measure the angle between that front hoof wall and the base of the foot the sole of the foot that angle should be about 50 degrees and again going back to husband animal husbandry standards increasing it's now the clear thought amongst everybody that yes it should be 50 degrees but that's an animal that we're talking about outside and when an animal walks outside the point of her toe sinks into the ground so actually the angle is much greater so you, you do you understand what yeah. i mean yeah as they roll over the point of the foot is going to jag into the ground so the pedal bone is going to get a rest it's not going to be totally crushed under that concrete when an animal walks on concrete there's no forgiveness at all so that 50 degrees is all you're getting the pedal bone is completely insulted and that's i suppose the principle as well with mats parlor mats you know is to allow that sinking allow that cushioning effect and just take the pressure off yeah that's that's yeah that's absolutely right so the pedal bone so the pedal bone is some people would call it the coffin bone or p3 or whatever the triangular bone inside a cow's hoof it's she's not standing this will, this will sound really silly but stick with me she's not standing on the soles of her feet the inside of her hoof is being suspended from the front wall of her hoof capsule. So as you look down on a cow's foot, you can see her hoof. That's the front wall or the dorsal wall. Everything inside that hoof is being hung from that wall. So when there's concrete, it's it's actually slouching. The, the foot is slouching inside the hoof capsule, but then it's being stopped by the concrete. If a cow was standing on grass, it can actually sink into the grass or the, the sod beneath its feet. And that's why parlor matting and things work, because they allow for the sinking of the pedal bone into the rubber. But again, rubber can cause problems as well, because then you don't get any of the wear. So if you have rubber in the wrong places, then the cow's feet won't wear enough and there'll be too much of an imbalance between one and the other foot or too much overgrowth or whatever. So when you put one thing in, yes, it does alleviate the pain from the pedal bone pushing down on the corium, causing ulcers, but then you need to counteract that by trimming your cows a little bit more. Um, beef cows don't have that problem because they're not on concrete quite so often. And even when they are inside, they're not usually walking on such clean concrete, which has adverse effects for digital dermatitis, but there's more cushioning beneath their feet which is why you usually don't see quite so many ulcers. There are other reasons as well. Like, um, for instance, a, a beef animal is has a much higher body condition score usually, uh, sorry, kind of fat content, meat content, muscle content than a dairy animal. And all of that protects the base of the foot from things coming up at it. So the, the ground, concrete, stones, all that kind of thing. So inherently, 
beef cows do have better feet than dairy cows because they're fatter, for want of a better word. And then I suppose there's also the the protein that you know the the pokiness of the diet. So if you're a a suckler cow standing eating a, a bale of hay all winter, you know you're not getting that high level of protein, that huge growth in in hoof horn, and and that's I suppose you see that when you lift. Uh, or I'm, I'm telling you, <laughs> in my experience anyway, when you when you lift a beef, an outwinter beef animal's hoof, it's like concrete. Yeah, yeah. And you lift right. a dairy cow's feet, it's uh, definitely not like concrete. Yep. Um, so that comes down to moisture content as well. So obviously an animal that's housed inside is usually walking around a little bit of slurry. Even if that's just a small amount of slurry coating their feet, it's moisture constantly being in contact with the hoof capsule so it's constantly moist so cow's feet inside are always or virtually always softer like the actual hoof horn itself is softer than a beef animal's outside which is why you you tend to get more white line cracks as well because a white line crack is when the outside of the hoof wall cracks away from the base of the of the sole of the the hoof and that's combination of a cow being on concrete twisting around and the the hoof horn not being capable of staying together under load of a of a how of a cow corkscrewing around if you like um but yeah the, the fat content in a in a beef animal helps massively in the fight against lameness from a cow's point of view because there's there's three tubes of fat in a hoof capsule so if you think a hoof capsule is the hoof then inside you've got bone then you have corium well sorry you have bone then you have the digital cushion which is three tubes of fat and then you have the corium so when you or i or anybody listening to this loses weight you don't just lose it in one arm you lose it everywhere and it's the same for an animal so when an animal loses fat she loses fat from the digital cushion which is pure fat in her feet so effectively she's losing the insoles from her shoes so a dairy cow doesn't have insoles because she's got such a small fat pad and a beef animal has big, thick insoles. Which one would you find more comfortable? The big, the big thick insoles, and that's the, the fat pad and a major reason for beef animals having better feet in general than dairy animals. I remember an, an old colleague of mine actually asking a question on that one, which was to a vet, and it's a, a difficult question to answer, but it was the, are lean cows lame or are lame cows lean? And I think the answer is both. <laughs> the answer is definitely both. <laughs> the answer is 100% both. So, yeah. So a lean cow will end up lame and a lame cow will end up lean. Mm-hmm. In equal measures, I would say, actually. Yeah. Um, you can see any cow who has the dreaded foul in the foot or anything like that, within a week of her getting foul in the foot, so an infection that is in the lower joints in her ankle, because that's such a painful problem for them, they just sit down and they don't want to do anything. So they become lean very, very quickly. And as we've just been talking about the digital cushion, if a cow is lean from an E. coli infection or something like that, then she's got no digital cushion. So effectively, she's standing on marbles the whole time, bruising her feet. So definitely, uh, lean cows go lean and lean cows go lean. It really, it just highlights that the whole steam cow, the knife edge, you know, yeah. At 12 o'clock, that cow is an ultimate food-producing machine. Yeah. But you don't have to go much past 12 o'clock or much before 12 o'clock and things start to go wrong. So it's Yeah, kind of, yeah, absolutely. The one area, I suppose, two more areas. One is bulls. So management of bulls is obviously tricky. 
the thing I think we are seeing more of is it's not a massive, you know, you see sterling bull sales a few weeks ago and they we're still feeding bulls quite hard. But what's your view on management of young bulls and then management of stock bulls later in life? Sorry, I'm, I'm not trying not to spark at this one because it is, it's such a difficult subject. Uh, who wants to buy the smallest bull in the ring? Yeah, not me. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what is not good for a bull's feet? Being pushed when he's too young. So a bull will build muscle mass far quicker than he can build his bone structure and far quicker than he can build his hooves. Um, so feeding young bulls is has an adverse effect on their feet. There's no absolutely no doubt about it. Um, and if if that's the case, then it's fine if you manage that bull from there on out. So once so once a bull has been bred and and brought up through his adolescent years, if he's been brought up with big muscle mass, then that's fine as long as whoever buys that bull or whoever keeps that bull stays on top of their feet. It should be fine and it the environment is absolutely crucial. We visited a farm just just last week and the, there were two beautiful limousine bulls, but they'd worn their feet completely off themselves because they were, they were fairly young, but they were very big muscled bulls and they were being fed on a concrete yard that was cleaned pretty regular. So the, their feet were completely bruised. We ended up putting four blocks on their back feet and it's just purely to try to thicken up the soles. It won't it won't alleviate the bruising right now because their soles need to thicken up first. But had those bulls been kept on grass, it wouldn't have been a problem at all. So again, it goes back to horses for courses kind of thing. If you buy a big muscled bull, if you buy a bull that's been pushed on early on, then fair enough because you want to buy that because you want to see the potential in the stock that he's going to leave behind him clearly. And that's what I would be going for as well. But you need to keep in mind that you're going to really have to look after that bull's feet and be very tentative and careful about where you keep them. And so if you, if you put a, a, a stock bull that was big muscled onto a concrete yard and he was bulling heifers, he is going to completely destroy his back feet. And there's almost no coming back from it if they go too far. And then you have a situation where, Oh, so what do you suggest I do? And the suggestion is just stick him in a field for the next six months and hope he gets better because there's not that much you can do. Um, other than obviously, like things like Metacam and Ketocam and Ricocam and all these um, NSAIDs are fantastic at alleviating bruising, but they don't diminish the problem. You know, the problem's still there. They're still heavy on their feet and they're they're on concrete. So if you if you put them back onto like a, a decent grass park or something like that, they, they should come back. But yeah, you got to really really keep on top of bull's feet, and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean trim them all the time. What it does mean is, so hoof trimmers a lot of the time will say they don't they don't charge to hoof trim a cow; they charge to check a cow. The trimming is completely free, and that what that means is if there's a farmer standing next to you, the hardest cow to trim is a cow that doesn't need trimmed when the farmer's standing next to you because you need to have the confidence to say, I'm not going to take anything off this cow. I'm just going to put a foot back on the ground. And when it comes to bulls, it's money and time well spent left on their feet once a year just to check that nothing is starting to rear its ugly head or to see if there's bruising so that you know you need to get them onto softer ground before that problem becomes really visible and a real, real problem because they're such heavy animals that they can't hide from, from any problem. Yeah.
Yeah, and is the same true? So I'm a big advocate for having it too and getting things as productive, getting things productive as early as possible. But is the same true for heifers that are pushed to calve earlier? Is do they have more feet problems than than those that are more slowly matured? Yeah. So what's going to happen is, so you need to think of any lameness incident. You need to think of, so don't think of the initial lameness problem. We'll talk about that quickly, but it's the lasting effects that really, really matter when it comes to heifers. So when a heifer calves in, she's going to go from one environment, she's going to be carrying a very heavy calf for, for the size of her, and then she's going to go onto concrete to, to start milking, presumably, maybe outside. But she's carrying that extra weight. So if there's any bruising on the sole of a heifer's feet, which is very likely if they're going onto concrete, that bruising is bleeding. It's just internal bleeding. And when you get bleeding inside the hoof capsule, what happens is you get little spurs on the base of the pedal bone. So the, the pedal bone, that triangular bone inside a hoof capsule, should be perfectly smooth on its base. She, she should be walking on a smooth bone, which sits on top of the, the digital cushion, which sits on top of the corium. As soon as bruising starts, so bleeding starts, then these little spars start to grow and calcify on the base of the pedal bone. And now instead of having a smooth base to her pedal bone, she's got all these little spiky projections and they're there forever. So if, in answer to your question, if a heifer starts to get bruised feet and you think it's just bruised feet, well, it is just bruised feet, but that will have lasting complications for the rest of our life. So there was a really good study done by James Wilson over the past couple of years where he actually injected calving heifers, I think it was a couple of days before they calved, with uh, NSAIDs to reduce the inflammation on their corium. And then he followed them throughout their life, cy life cycle and it reduced lameness by 30% within the herd overall. And it was consistent everywhere. So it shows that Yes, you need to be incredibly careful with your first calving heifers in, in, in particular because you're going to set the scene for the rest of their, their life cycle within the herd. Yeah, amazing. The final point, I suppose, is if, if we go, um, we're taking a step back here. Now, you obviously, you said that you're, you were farming or you're from a farming family and obviously, unfortunately, not, not farming or, or business-wise, fortunately, maybe, but um, it's, you know, difficult circumstances why you're not. But were you to go back into farming? So if you were, if you were going to be a dairy farmer, what system would you run? I would run a robot system without a doubt. There's no hesitation at all because when you look at, the social aspect of farming and when you look at the social aspect of cows within a herd which i feel is incredibly important i feel that cows need to be healthy and they need to be happy and cows need that hierarchy within the, the social confines of a herd so i'm actually talking about their stance within the herd and the fact that they can selectively milk themselves and it's a much more natural environment but you also have the constraints or sorry the advantages of a housed system because you can then make sure that their diet is consistent their environment is consistent you can make sure the husband is consistent and it, it's a much better way for me i i love the results that some of our robotic farmers are getting um the cows to me 
seem happier. That's going to really frustrate some people listening. Um, I do have obviously some amazing farms with rotary parlors and herringbones and, and, and outside um, systems, which are fantastic. But the results that I see on some of the robotic farms are phenomenal. Like they, they really, really are. We, we have down here a new entrant into dairy farming. They've been farming for two years and they're producing just under 40 litres over 300 cows. And the cows just look fantastic. And actually, it's a really interesting case because they, they uh, I shouldn't say too much, but they asked me to go and find a herd of cows for them to buy. And we found a really good herd of cows for them. And they missed the boat because the, their facilities weren't quite ready. So they ended up buying a herd of cows that definitely weren't fantastic. And they've taken them up to like 39.5 litres across the average for the whole herd within two years the cows look fantastic and it's down to their animal husbandry skills and them going into listening to everybody's advice and the robotic system that they're running it is phenomenal i mean some of these cows are milking five times a day and they're like they're really happy for it some are milking two times a day but i tell you what as well if you've got a robotic farm and your feet aren't good then you're going to have a lot of work on your hands (laughs) so it's good from my point of view as well because people who have these robotic systems are right up on uh on any lameness issues because their lameness issues impact on them directly yeah yeah, it's. Uh, I was actually hoping that was the kind of answer you were going to give because it, <laughs> it really is the. You know, it's quite compelling to hear from you that the guy that is frustrated by lameness. You know that you see all the you see the worst of it all, and if you were going into it, you would go with the high yielding, concrete based. You know, it can be done, and it is being done in many cases oh, without, uh, really without well. A doubt. Without a doubt. In a high yielding facility with a, with the cows housed twenty four hours a day, three hundred sixty five days a year, lameness can absolutely be controlled. So we had a farm that came to us with a changing of the guard kind of thing. So the father was finally kind of handing the reins over to the son, and they had a lameness percentage of, and this is true, seventy eight percent. And within a year, we took them down to twenty four percent. Now, getting them from twenty four percent lower is different because it means they need to actually get rid of the chronic cows. So now we've made all these cows more comfortable. We've made them, we've got rid of the chronic cows and all that. And now they're sitting at about 6% lameness. Now that's the exact same system that they started with, with the 78%. So it just shows a change of, um, a change of ideas, a change of, uh, of uh, focus and everything like that has brought about a hugely different circumstance for the farmer. So he's producing more milk, he's using less drugs, he's spending less now on his hoof trimming, the cows are happier, they're living longer, all like his stress levels are vastly reduced. He actually told me he was really embarrassed when I first got there and now they're, they're much better. He's He has a really high output, really high input. Um, it's quite an old setup. So yeah, absolutely, it can be done. And there's, um, an, there's an attitude thing in there as well. There's the... I assume the old attitude there was that the hoof trimmer was a cost and the new attitude, the young person's attitude, is that lameness is a cost. Ah, uh, yes. That, yeah, that's the exact, you've hit the nail on the head, yeah. And and it really is. A hoof trimmer should not cost you money. A hoof trimmer should be making you money. It's as simple as that. I mean, if you have a large place and you're somebody's trimming 300 cows a month for you, that's £3,000 a month without blocks or anything like that. But that's when a move towards in-house trimming should be made, in my eyes, to be honest, which 
is more and more a thing in Europe and in the States. And I think eventually as herds get bigger in the UK, it will become more of a thing here too. Mm-hmm. So just to finish, Graham, that's been an amazing insight into what you do a bit on lameness, a bit on, you know, an excellent job. But what I think we are in or heading into a pretty significant labour crisis in, in agriculture. You know, we've, we're really lacking the skills and the people we need and we need to attract people into the industry. Um, hoof trimming, if you're an enthusiastic young person, is it the way forward? Is that something that we should be um, seeing as a, as a career option or is it something you would discourage people from doing? <laughs> Depends what day you ask me. <laughs> no, it's Friday afternoon. So <laughs> today was fantastic, actually. No, hoof trimming as a career is absolutely fantastic. It's exceptionally hard work some days, but it is hugely, hugely rewarding, and it's a profession that is growing constantly and the professionality around about it is growing constantly in the UK and in fact right across the world so it's something I would definitely encourage people to get into and something that I would say there is space for more and more people to take up because I know for I don't know any hoof trimmers that aren't fully booked not not really anyway um there are lots of hoof trimmers right now but I wouldn't say there are enough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as those herds get bigger and labour gets tighter on herds, we're outsourcing more and more stuff. And certainly, you know, I, I I just think we should be shouting it from the rooftops as a as an industry. We we generally moan about how tough our job is, and we don't actually tell people that this is actually the best job in the world. Whatever we're doing in it, it's the best industry in the world, and it's the last the last industry standing as well. Yeah, well, people will always need fed. Like for forevermore, people are always gonna gonna be wanting fed. When it comes to hoof trimming, a good example is staffing is getting tighter and tighter. The farm I was at today is a fantastically well run farm. The feet have always been good. I've only been trimming there for about four years, three years. I don't know, three or four years. And he only got me in. He's he's good at hoof trimming. He only got me in to buy himself more time. And that is what more and more people will do because they'll find that staff shortages and skilled labor is harder and harder to come by, which again, actually partially brings you back to part of the reason I think robots are a good way forward because yes, you need the same amount of staffing, but it's a, a nicer way for some staff to live their lives. And that is an attraction <laughs> in itself to hopefully bring more people into the fold. And that, that brings us back to the whole scenario of me. If you ask me what kind of farming I would want to go into in dairy land, then robots would be the way forward for me because, yes, you need the same amount of labor pretty much, but the style of labor and the more sort of socially acceptable form for staff, it, it's much better to bring people into the fold of farming. And I think that is why more and more people will have robots. And it's certainly why... A lot of my customers, when they're putting new parlours in and considering different options, they end up with robots because they feel they can attract staff and retain staff for for longer because the hours are just more sociable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think on that point, a nice positive to finish on. Uh, I just want to say thank you very much, Graham. That's been for me, very interesting. As I say, I've been watching what you do from my couch with my nine-month-old son, who's right into your theme tune. So he's a he's a big fan. Um, but 
Yeah, it's been great to meet you and, and great, I think, to put hopefully put a bit of flesh in the bones, a bit of discussion in, in the lameness world, which is obviously, a, it's a massive, massive story uh, and somewhere that we can, even the best farmer can always do better when it comes to lameness as well. So we can we can never know enough. So your time is precious. I know you've got a lot on. So thank you very much for giving up your time and, and speaking to us today. No, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Um, sorry if I've waffled on. I could probably talk about feet for 24 hours straight. <laughs> yeah, awesome. We'll do an extended version another time. <laughs> Cheers, guys. If you enjoyed listening to Stock Talk, you may enjoy some of our other podcasts, such as Crofting Matters, which is a 12-part monthly show that discusses all things crofting in Scotland, including livestock management. You may also enjoy our new podcast, Agriculture, which tells the stories of some interesting and influential people in the agricultural industry. Just search Crofting Matters or Agriculture wherever you get your podcasts from. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.